Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. How's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I am an agribusiness recruiter and the founder of AgGrab. I love bringing you these stories every week about the people, ideas, perspectives, and companies shaping the future of agriculture and agribusiness. We certainly have one you're going to enjoy today. In fact, I'm having to re-record this introduction because I didn't realize till the end of it that I was I was talking about how wonderful it is this guest farm had been around since the 1800s and went on and on about how cool that was, only to find out that the farm has really been around since the 1700s. So I don't know how to go any further in saying how cool this is. We're talking to Coley Jones Drinkwater from Richland's Dairy Farm in Blackstone, Virginia. Their farm has been in their family, that's right, since the 1700s and still operating today. Now, I think some people fall into a trap when they hear about a family farm and someone taking over the family farm. I think there's this false perception that they are just so fortunate that they get to sort of carry the reins and a lot of the work's already been done for them. Maybe they're out of debt and maybe now it's just kind of figured out and they just get to, to fall into place and fall into line. Well, that's just not true. I mean, certainly, yes, th- th- one is very fortunate if they're born into a family farm. I think our guest today and I think anyone who's born into that situation would agree. There certainly is an appreciation for being born into something that is um, rich in heritage. However, that doesn't make it easy, and that certainly doesn't mean it can operate on autopilot. Even the oldest farms, which you're going to hear about here today, need to continue to evolve and iterate and stay up with the times in order to meet the changing marketplace. Coley Jones Drinkwater is going to talk to you about how they have made the decision to move away from just selling their dairy products, their milk on the commodity market, to now actually building a creamery and selling it direct to consumer in the form of delicious ice cream, which I can't wait to try. I found this interview to be inspiring. uh, Coley is very sincere and just genuine. Uh, She was very upfront with me about not only the challenges she faced, the pressure of uh, carrying a farm that's been around for generations, and uh, all of the challenges that come with that. So I think you're going to love this interview, and I think you're going to head out to Virginia uh, August of 2018 to try some uh, delicious ice cream, as I know I am. So enjoy this interview with Coley Jones Drinkwater. So the farm itself has been in the family since the mid 1700s. So to put that into perspective, we've been farming this land since this country, before this country was an independent nation. So you hear the word sustainability thrown around a lot today, but you know, there's no, we're definitely sustainable. We, we wouldn't still be here if we weren't. So um, my dairy farm wise, we've been a dairy farm since the mid 1950s when my grandpa came home. Um, And at the time, they were selling tobacco as a cash crop, and it was a homestead. He did his research and thought that the future of agriculture was in dairy. So he started to convert it over to dairy farming. Um, They had my grandma and grandpa had five kids. My father was the only boy, and he was the only one that decided to come back to the farm. So he and my mother came back um, in the 1970s, late 70s sometime. 
um, and they expanded the operation to support two families. Um, so it was my grandpa, my mom, my dad, and a couple of hired helps. Um, my dad, my mom actually decided to go to med school a few years after they returned. So she commuted an hour into Richmond and an hour home every day and went to med school. Um, and then that's when my dad hired our first herd manager. Um, so he continued to grow the dairy. And then, um, in about 2006, no, 2004, 2002, 2004, somewhere in there. Uh, my brother and I both decided that we wanted to come home, uh, much to my parents' anguish, I think. Um, growing up, I remember we were not encouraged to come back and dairy farm at all. Um, I mean, I distinctly remember one day riding home from grandma's house. Uh, we would go to her house after school and wait for my dad to finish on the farm. And so all three of us, myself, my younger sister, and my younger brother piled into the pickup truck to come home. And my dad must have had a long day, and he looked at us, and he said, y'all can be anything you want to be, but do not be a dairy farmer. Hmm. Um, and then my mom felt the same way. She never encouraged us to come home to the dairy farm. The funny thing is, my um, our middle sister was the rebellious child, and she's the only one that took their advice and actually <laughs> left the farm. So my brother and I both came back. I think it was in 2002, um, and we've, we've been here ever since. So in order to accommodate three families. We continue to, um, expand the farm. We're milking about 250 cows. At the time we were milking three times a day. We're only milking twice a day. Now we crop about 500 to 520 acres of corn that we'll use for corn silage to feed the cows. And if it's a good year, we'll, um, shell some as well. And then we crop about 200 to 250 acres of Marshall ryegrass or triticale um, to turn into haylage to feed the cows as well. And then three years ago, we started um, pumpkin patch and corn maize in October and started our fall festival. So on the weekends, we're open to the public. Families can um, come onto the farm, get a tour of the farm, pick a pumpkin, hayride. Um, we have a kid's area set up, um, just various activities for them to do. And then during the week, we do school tours. So, and then this time of year in May and June, we're kicking up again with school tours. So, you know, we've, we've really grown our agritourism base. And then June 23rd this year, it'll be our first dinner on the dairy. So we'll do a tour of the farm and a four course meal uh, with local foods, wine and beer. So not only are we a dairy farm, but we do, we really try and um, do a lot of public outreach and agritourism events as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that is so much. So I've got about 10 follow-up questions. So we probably won't get to any of the other prepared questions I had for you. <laughs> but oh, I gotta, okay. <laughs> this is really cool. That, no, it's awesome. So before the 1950s, when you when uh, your grandfather decided to start dairying, w what sustained the farm? What crops was the farm from the 1800s uh, to, to the 1950s? It would have been primarily tobacco. I mean, okay. that was that was the cash crop and still for some families is the cash crop in this area. Um, but it was also a homestead. So like, whereas today when you want food, you go, most of us go to the grocery store, you know, they grew their own food. They had a garden, they had pigs, they had chickens, they had a milk cow. So, um, they had what they needed in order to feed and sustain their families. Um, but as far as money coming in, that would have been tobacco. 
And it would seem your 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 family's a uh, sort of at a, another pivotal moment where both you and your brother are trying to return. So it actually needs to. So would that make it three families, or is your grandfather still in the picture as well? Is that four? Um, so there are four families in the picture. Um, I, sh- I should back up a little bit and mention that to Grandpa's credit, he was right. Um, we have a, a a graph of milk price from the nineteen. 19- 50s when, or starting in 1960 when he came home. And from the 1960s to the 1980s, milk price rose steadily. So grandpa really called it. Um, then they were able to raise five children. Grandma was a stay at home mom. Um, and, you know, they paid for everything out of what the farm made. They sent five kids to college, they raised them um, off of farm income. You wouldn't be able to do that today. If you looked at the uh, milk price between the 80s and about the early 2000s, um, it kind of leveled off. It had its ups and downs. But when you get into the 2000s, you start to enter, especially the late 2000s, you start to enter a global market and it's anybody's game. And that's where my brother and I came in. So whereas grandpa came in and the milk price steadily arose and it was a good time to be in dairy, now it's – Milk prices all over the place. It's very volatile. It's hard. Dairying is very hard right now, um, just because you can't. The highs are highs, the lows are lows, and you don't catch the highs real often. If that makes sense. Oh so, yeah, definitely. It's it's commodity agriculture in a global economy. Uh, so correct. it sounds like to to kind of deal with that, uh, you all have made the decision to go to um, business models that are more direct to the consumer. Is that right? That's right. So um, a couple of years after I came back to the farm, I, I was interested in building a creamery so that we would be able to take our own milk, pasteurize it, um, homogenize it, bottle it, and then sell either milk, cheese, yogurt, ice cream, something. But just sell milk and a value-added product directly to the, to the public. Um, but... I couldn't convince my dad or my brother that that was a good idea, but I've never given up on that dream. And about a year and a half, two years ago, milk price really fell. Um, So we've entered into that volatile market. We've been there for a few years. Um, We had a couple of drought years where we had to buy corn in. So that really hurt us. So we were, we were carrying more debt than really we would like, but we weren't in bad financial trouble when you looked at numbers as a whole. But it wasn't something, a trend that we wanted to continue. So when milk price dropped, um, we were losing about 300 to $500 a day. And that's just, that is not a sustainable business. So to kind of put this into perspective, we're the size dairy that's the fastest disappearing in the United States because we're too big to be small and we're too small to be big. So it takes all of us working full time. It's my dad, myself, my brother, my sister-in-law, three full-time guys and a couple of part-time um, guys and gals to make this farm run. So we can't get all farm jobs to help supplement income or to provide health insurance because we're all, this is our full-time plus job, but we're also not big enough to get the efficiencies of scales that like the thousand plus cow dairies get. So whereas we were losing money every day, those dairies were still making money. And it, that wasn't going to change. This, this volatile market isn't going to change. We have a milk surplus in this country. 
I don't know how many of your listeners know this, but um, if you're in agriculture at all, you know that you don't control what you get paid. So there's no negotiating power. And so we really reached a point for us personally where it was like, well, we can't just keep losing money. We can't keep going further into debt. We really do not want to lose the farm over this. We can sell the cows. We can do something different. You know, each of us can do something different, but we do not want to lose the land. We do not want that to go out of the family. And so either we sell out or we change the business model. They finally decided to change the business model. So that's when they kind of gave me the go ahead to say, all right, well, if we're going to do this, let's pursue a creamery. And so has that started? Have you all uh, started to go down the route of of building your own creamery? Yes, we have. Um, I would say I'm past the beginning stages, hit it into the middle stages. We had just about have a um, finished feasibility study and financial analysis. We're working with Virginia Fairs through um, Farm, Virginia Farm Bureau. It's a, a great organization within Farm Bureau that will help you um, get a business plan, feasibility study together, and then apply for some grants as well. So we're just about through the, the first stages of that. We're working with uh, Dairy Heritage in Maryland. Um, on a floor plan and an equipment list. And we've just about nailed down a floor plan. Um, so that's going on. That's just about done. We've just about, I think, finalized a new logo. So there are a lot of things that have been months in the working that are finally starting to come together um, so that we can start. I feel like for so many months now, like a year and a half, really, I've had all these different threads that I've been following and pursuing, and now I'm finally starting to be able to sort of braid those threads together so you can actually see some some of what's happening. So the goal is by um, whenever the weather breaks next winter to go ahead and start with the building, like actual physically building. And the overall goal is my birthday is August 2nd. So by August 2nd, 2018, I hope that we are open and serving ice cream. That's fantastic. Now, is this creamery designed to uh, to just have the capacity to uh, take in your own family's milk, or w- will you take in milk from other dairies as well? Uh, no, it'll just be our, our own dairy. Um, and then the goal is to sort of to find that sweet spot. So we're milking 250 cows now. It's, that's a lot of milk to market. Um, and in most of the farms that we have visited that are doing something similar and that are, have been very successful at it seem to have found a sweet spot between about 120 and 150 cows where they're finally able to make some money to both support the dairy and the creamery. Um, but they really don't have to milk anymore. They're just they're happy. They're cash flowing. They're finally able to make a living and they're happy where they are. And that's, that's my goal is to find that, that sweet spot. Is there anyone in your area doing the same thing that, I mean, a dairy that has their own creamery? Um, yes and no. There is, um, a, a creamery that's fairly well known near us about an hour and a half away, um, that pulls milk from several different local farms, uh, and pasteurizes it, processes it, bottles it. Um, they also make ice cream. And then there's one, another one about an hour and a half away to the north that, again, the same thing where um, they have farms 
that are supplying them the milk and then a different sort of business is processing it. So yeah. we're the only ones in our area where the milk will actually flow from the cow to the cone without leaving the farm. So we will have been involved in it every step of the way from raising the calf to milking the cow to pasteurizing the milk to making the ice cream to serving it to you. Cow to the cone. I love it. Um, yeah. So the, the big important question is what will be your first flavor? Ooh, so I have thought long and hard about this. My grandma is known for her butter pecan ice cream. We have a church lawn supper every September. I think it's the third Saturday in September. If you're ever in the area, stop on by. Um, but she makes butter pecan for this lawn supper every year. And if you want some, you better go get some before you get your meal because it goes <laughs> the fastest. And so as an ode to my grandmother, our butter pecan will be our feature flavor. I love that. I I, I am such a, an ice cream aficionado. I, I will somehow make a trip out to Blackstone, Virginia for this ice cream because it sounds just delicious. Oh, um, please do. Yeah, no, I the this is such an intriguing concept, and I think it hits on a lot of um, you know trends out there. Of course, mm -hmm. people want to be closer to every aspect of the value chain of where their food comes from, uh, so kind of localization. But then on the other side of of progressive farmers saying, you know what, commodity agriculture has has been fine, but in this global environment, we also want a piece of our business to be more branded or, or more specialized so that it's not just basic commodity agriculture. And I think it's really, really interesting. I, I want to uh, pivot a little bit and talk about something you mentioned earlier on sustainability. You, you said, you know, there's been a lot of talk about sustainability out there, but when it comes down to it, you know, basically what to summarize what you said, you know, nothing says sustainability like a, like a farm that's been around for over a hundred years. Um, can you talk a little bit more about kind of what people perceive as sustainable and, and how you view sustainability? I think it's become a marketing ploy and kind of a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot. And I, I'm not pointing fingers at, at anyone. It just seems in my own perception that people seem to associate sustainability with organic. And that's really not fair to those of us who aren't labeled organic farmers. Because there are so many practices that organic farmers use that non-organic farmers use as well. So to me, sustainable is what you do that takes care of your land so that the land takes care of you. So using practices like um, no-till planting uh, where you're not working up the soil, so you're not you know, leading to erosion. Using things like um, GMO crops where you're not having to put down pesticides um, because the plant is, is taking care of that itself, uh, doing crop rotation. So if you plant, you know, corn in this field one year or two years, you plant soybeans, you know, a following year so that if you're pulling nitrogen out of the ground with the corn, you're putting nitrogen back in the ground with soybeans. So it's whatever farming practice you do that when you take from the land, you give something back to the land. That to me is sustainable. And then, like, just like you said, any farm that you look at, if it has been a multi-generational farm, that farmer is doing something right. Because if you don't take care of the land, that land's not going to keep being productive. One thing that I find very frustrating about um, labels that are used for marketing purposes is I think there's a difference between something that is true and something that is honest. So while it may be true to label blueberries as GMO-free, 
it's not exactly honest because there's no GMO variety for blueberries. All blueberries are GMO free. Or when you label chicken like antibiotic free, well, yes, that's true, but it's not honest. All, all chicken is antibiotic free. So there, there's all these marketing terms that we use that while they may state a truth, they can be misleading and dishonest. And for me, when I'm looking at marketing the creamery and our dairy products, what I really want to do is focus more on honesty. So I want to open up the farm for agritourism events, have people come to our farm, take a tour, be able to ask questions, you know, why, why do we do this farming practice or um, how do we feel about this? So I, I'd rather have a conversation with you and show you what we do on our farm and give you all the facts, be honest with you, and then let you make up your mind if you want to buy our products. So when it comes to labeling our own products, I really do not, and, and I plan on not labeling like GMO-free or antibiotic-free or, or grass-fed or just throwing these labels on there that mean next to nothing or that can be misleading. To me, that's just you're not being honest with your customers and I want to be honest with ours. Great. Yeah. I, I, you know, in my, in my problem, I, I don't ever criticize any form of agriculture. And I think a consumer should, should have the choice of, of eating whatever they, they want to eat. However, uh, where a lot of consumers are misled is they think if something isn't labeled as organic, that means that that farmer cares any less about sustainability, which is just, you know, untrue. Uh, right. Both, you, you know, both farmers have to care about sustainability first and foremost. Um, and, and that starts with the land and, and the animals that take care of you. So I, I think you put that so well and so succinctly. Uh, what for you has been the hardest part of farming since you've been back on the farm full time? Yeah, I thought long and, and hard about this question. And I actually have two answers to that, that I think are just as equally hard. I would say the first one is when you look at our numbers, so our um, industry standard numbers, so our pregnancy rate, our conception rate, our cost of growing feed, um, when, when you look at those industry standards, we rank within the top, I think it was, I looked at it a while ago, I think it was the top 10 dairies in the United States. Not dairies our size, dairies all together. Wow. So what we are doing, we are doing really well. And we're losing three hundred to five hundred dollars a day. That is frustrating because mm. you know we we've cut costs where we can cut costs without cutting corners. And so you know we we really strive to take care of our cows, to take care of our land, to provide a good wholesome product to the market. And no matter how good we are, we're not going to get ahead with the current business model that we have. Mm. And so that to me that that is extremely, that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, and it's also, like I said, what in part, what prompted us to be like, all right, we got to change the business model because I'm proud of what we do here. I'm proud of how we've taken care of our lands and how we've taken care of the cows and the, the generations of work that have come before. And I don't want to lose that. Um, so that to me is, that's one of the really hard things about dairy farming here. The second thing is how isolating dairy farming can be, um, or just farming in general. I shouldn't just say dairy farming. But um, if you farm, it's not a job. It's not an occupation. It is your life. That, that is what your life is. 
And I take that very seriously. So I'm not going to leave here if there's a cow or a calf that needs my attention. Sometimes the crops just have to get planted. Like they're calling for rain for the next three days. My brother's probably going to be out until late tonight, early in the morning, trying to get as much corn in the ground as he can before the rain gets here. There's just, there are things that have to get done on a farm that just can't wait, you know? And that can be very isolating. I've missed, and we've all missed, um, friends' baby showers. There's family weddings we haven't been able to go to. I've had to cancel dates last minute. Um, my husband has even told me I, I know that I come second to the farm. And, you know, I'm not proud to admit that, but I, yes, he does. And it's not because I don't love him. It's because there are just things you have to do. Um, and then it's also, I would say along those lines, I guess it's something that I, I, I wish more people understood just how much this requires of you. Um, and so I'm not a great friend to most of my friends. And if any of my friends are listening, I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm sorry. Um, but there are things that I know that they invite me to that I can't go to, or I have to cancel last minute. And there are things that I don't get invited to probably because I rarely show up. And so I would also say to don't for anybody who's a friend of a farmer, don't give up on your farmer friends. We need you. We need the sanity that you provide in our lives and that respite to get off of the farm and for just a little while be something other than a farmer. And so uh, between between working hard with no return and the isolation to work hard <laughs> with no return, I would say that those are the two hardest things for me for being about being a farmer. Wow, I, I I I'm just really touched by how how well you just captured that that um that I feel like that was a very just uh, sincere insight in, into your world. What what are the moments that you think to yourself, okay, it's all worth it? So my um there there are moments of clarity that you get on a farm. Sometimes it's when a cow has been really sick or a calf and you've put so much time and effort into making them feel better. And then you walk past the pen or you go to check on her and she's standing there chewing her cud and is feeling better. And you just think, oh, thank God. Like that, that was worth it. You know, when I go to work every day and I look around and it can be crazy or it can be in the still small, quiet moments. But I know there is a God. I see his hand at work every day. I do not question that. And for me, that's such a large part of my life because knowing that there is a God, that there is a something higher than me that is watching over me gives me gives me hope, I guess. I, I have faith that things are going to get better. And in that faith, I have hope for a brighter tomorrow. Uh, but it also gives me a purpose in life, I feel, that this is, this is not just an accident. This is not just something that I'm doing. This is something that I'm called to. And I, I think I look around me and I, I think so few people have or feel like they have a purpose in life. And having a purpose in life is everything. It's that reason for why you wake up in the morning and what motivates you and keeps you going. And if you feel like you don't have a purpose, then, you know, what, what's there to drive you? So my faith also gives me a purpose. Um, 
And then a, a big part of it, what makes it worth it to me is family. Um, I grew up with my grandma and grandpa right here on the farm. Um, they're both still alive. Grandpa's 93, grandma's 87, I think. And I grew, I got to grow up with them. And that was such a blessing because how many kid, grand, how many people get to grow up with their grandparents right there? And so I grew up hearing stories of the depression, stories of um, grandma's family was so poor that they had to use feed sacks as dresses. Their mom would take their feed sacks um, and then sew them and turn them into dresses. Or hearing stories of grandpa and how he was the youngest brother. He was called home from college because his two older brothers had been drafted into the war and his parents didn't want him to be drafted, so they called him home to the farm so he couldn't be. But Grandpa was torn between you know, his call of duty to family and to preserve the farm and his call of duty to go out and fight, fight for a higher purpose. And so he was torn there. And to hear just what he had to go through just mentally and emotionally, and we ultimately ended up disobeying his parents and signing up for the Navy. Um, and they, they were so heartbroken. They almost disowned him according to him. And I, I look at both my grandparents and I think, you know, I have never been so poor that I had to wear a seed bag as an article of clothing. And I've never had to make a decision like what my grandpa made. And that to me, that just, again, going back to humility, but it also really helps give you perspective in life that, there are so many things that they needed, not just things that they wanted, but things that they may have needed growing up that they didn't have. And so when I look at my own life, I think, okay, do I need this or do I want this? Because there is a big difference between the two. And when you recognize that, it, it really helps put your life into perspective. I have everything that I need in life and some of what I want. And when you recognize that your needs are taken care of, I just feel a profound sense of gratitude for what it is that I have. And then suddenly my wants, you know, they don't seem so important all of a sudden. And so for me, that's been, that's been very, very good, a very good driver in my life. But the thing that makes it worthwhile more than anything is, you know, we, we have this crazy life. We do sacrifice a lot to the farm. Sometimes you sacrifice your sanity even. But there are days when um, when we're able to just sit, or not even days, there are just these moments where we're able to sit down as a family after maybe we've had a long day and we're just sitting and we're visiting. And uh, I, the best example I can give is my brother right now has a two-year-old daughter. And as hard as he works, when he comes home at the end of the day, he gets her, goes outside, and plays with her. He has never been too tired. I've never heard him tell his daughter or not seen him outside playing with her after, after working all day. And if I'm at the bar and I'll go over, because they live right there on the, in the, on the farm, and I'll play with them as well. And it's in those, those kind of moments when you're able to just sit and take a moment and breathe and enjoy what you have that, to me, make it so worth it. And I hope in building the creamery that maybe that's something that I can do for someone else's family as well. 
where you can just come, get some ice cream, sit on the porch, just breathe and take a moment to be together as a family. Because that, to me, is really what makes farming work all the sacrifice. Well, Coley Jones Drinkwater, this has been a fantastic interview. Uh, I really, really appreciate your time and and sharing your life with with everyone listening. Um, Everyone tunes into this podcast because they feel a connection to agriculture, whether it be through business or through personal life or whatever. But I think uh, your story is is an inspiration to to anyone uh, interested in the ag industry. And I cannot wait to come out for some butter pecan ice cream. If if anyone listening wants to keep up with uh, the work you're doing and find out about uh, coming out next August for some ice cream, how can they keep up with you online? So we do have a Facebook page. Um, it's Richlands Dairy Farm. And then we also have a web page, richlandsdairyfarm.com. All right. We will also include that in the show notes. Thank you, Coley, so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. How cool was that? I, I love that story from not only from a multi-generational angle, from a sustainability angle, and from a farm ag entrepreneurship angle. I just thought that was so much fun and so interesting and exciting. Big thank you to Coley Jones Drinkwater for taking the time to be on the show. Really, really love that, and I'm confident that you did as well. Also wanted to give a special shout out to Natalina Sense, who I think you've heard me mention on the show before, has been instrumental in recommending guests to me. Uh, people like Coley who ha- are just doing really interesting stuff in the world of agriculture. So thank you, Natalina, for everything you've done for me and for the show. Really, really do appreciate it. Uh, lastly, if you are listening to this on an iPhone and you haven't yet just gone on to iTunes and left us a rating review, please do so. Uh, We have a a really nice one here recently from 5H Riley, who says, fantastic for expanding knowledge. I recently graduated from college as an agribusiness student, and this podcast has been incredibly helpful for me. In Tim's interviews with different professionals in ag, I've learned a lot about intriguing jobs and people who work in them. Tim is great at interviewing everyone and talks to amazing people, even Dr. Temple Grandin. Yes, we did. I 100% recommend this podcast to everyone, even if you're not in the ag industry. Hey, thank you, 5H Riley. And for all of you who have left a rating review, thank you so much. We will be back next week on the Future of Agriculture podcast, and I'm more excited than ever to do this for you because these stories just get me all sorts of motivated. Hopefully they do for you as well. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com, that's A-G-G-R-A-D.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.